Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. Studying the 14th Amendment is like taking one thread of American history since the mid-19th century and following it through all the major events of the period since then. It's a kind of a great way to study history. So today we are going to discuss the 14th Amendment, explore what it is, why it became a constitutional amendment, and what legal decisions have shaped how the amendment is used today. I'm Averill. And I'm Elizabeth. And we're your historians for this episode of Dig. So a little word about the information we're going to be discussing today. Um, I had an opportunity to take a constitutional law class in the law school while I was taking classes for my doctorate. Um, And it was really interesting because I was in there with a bunch of law students. And it was eye-opening for me, at least, to see how differently lawyers and historians look at legal cases. Um, I'm not saying one is better than the other or anything like that. I'm just saying that they're really different. And I found myself constantly butting heads with people in that class because I kept bringing up content context, context, context. And they were like, no, legal precedent, legal precedent, legal precedent. (laughs) You know, we just kept going like back and forth. Um, And so today in this episode, we're going to try to present this information in a historical view. But I will be taking some cues from constitutional law to explain how, in my opinion, how convoluted the path of the 14th Amendment really has been. But by saying that, I also want to give a disclaimer that we will just barely be scratching the surface as far as this law goes. Um, We're just going to discuss a sampling of cases because so many cases are decided using multiple legal precedents. And there are so many cases that deal with the 14th Amendment. Um, This episode would literally be like three hours long if we covered everything. So no, thank you. (laughs) I don't think (laughs) I want that. (laughs) At its base, the 14th Amendment deals with due process rights and equal protection. The 14th Amendment provided an expanded definition of national citizenship. 
The amendment extended citizenship to, quote, all persons born or naturalized in the United States and decreed that, quote, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of the law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Interestingly, there wasn't a guarantee for the equal protection of the law in the Constitution until the 14th Amendment was added. It was ratified in 1868, but it took the Supreme Court over half a century to actually start enforcing it, at least in the way its drafters intended it to be used. So what does equal protection of the law actually mean? Superficially, it means that states guarantee the same rights, privileges, and protections to all citizens. But this doesn't actually mean that states simply require an even-handed application of the law. An example of doing that is given by legal scholar David O'Brien. In this example, applying an even-handed application of the law would mean that states could simply deny blonde-haired individuals public employment or benefits so long as they rigorously denied all blonde-haired applicants. That would be a narrow focus of the law, which was actually struck down in the 1886 case Yikwu v. Hopkins, which we will discuss uh, in a little more detail uh, later. So deciding cases based on the 14th Amendment requires scrutiny that has been administered in different degrees throughout its 150-year history. Now for a little history and backstory on the 14th Amendment. It was one of three very important amendments called the Reconstruction Amendments. These were the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. These amendments essentially embody the development of Reconstruction policy from 1864 to 1870. The 13th Amendment is actually a very narrow amendment, and it shows the limited goals of presidential Reconstruction. In May 1865, immediately following the assassination of President Abraham Lincoln, President Andrew Johnson and his administration created a plan for Reconstruction, which became known as Presidential Reconstruction, and that included the following provisions. So, number one, <laughs> former Confederates who pledged loyalty to the Union received amnesty and pardon. All of their property was restored except slaves, but including any land that had been provided to freed people in the closing months of the war. Number two, some former Confederates, including the highest officials in the Confederacy and those who owned more than $20,000 of property, had to apply to Johnson in person for pardon. Uh, Johnson granted pardons to nearly all who did apply. States could be restored fully into the Union after they wrote new constitutions that accepted the abolition of slavery, repudiated succession, and canceled the Confederate debt. And finally, state conventions charged with writing new constitutions were not required to allow African Americans to participate. So essentially, presidential reconstruction was very conservative, and it led to what is known as radical or congressional reconstruction, which was far more sweeping and interventionist in its attempt to bring equality to freed blacks in the South and brought us the 14th and 15th Amendments. Um, and as an aside, I think an episode solely on reconstruction is in order. Probably, yeah. Probably, maybe me and Sarah will work on that one. <laughs> yes, thank you. All right. So the 13th Amendment abolished, uh, abolished slavery throughout the United States. 
The 14th Amendment was drafted by the Joint Committee on Reconstruction during the spring of 1866. It guaranteed federal protection for black equality under the law. It encouraged states to enfranchise black men, and it disenfranchised former Confederate leaders. Uh, the franchise, of course, is the vote, of course. Yeah. The 14th Amendment has five sections. The first section introduces the citizenship law for all people born in the country or naturalized, and it states that state law cannot supersede federal laws. The amendment also states that individual states cannot deprive citizens of life, liberty, or property without due process of the law. So this essentially means that legal proceedings need to be given. Um, you have to be given notice about, like, you know, why you're being arrested or whatever. People can't just, like, show up, you know, in the middle of the night and arrest you and, and not tell you why. Um, it allows for a fair trial. Section 3 of the 14th Amendment focuses on rebellion, prohibiting anyone from being elected or appointed to a state or federal office after engaging in rebellion or treason. Hmm. Um, obviously, because this is after the Civil War. Mm -hmm. uh, the Houses of Congress can vote to override this if two-thirds of the votes are in favor. Section 4 serves to legitimize the public debt that Congress appropriates. This section was put in place to prevent the Confederacy's war and emancipation debts from impacting the reunited country. Uh, and the power of enforcement is outlined in Section 5 of the 14th Amendment. And this clause gives Congress the power to pass appropriate laws to enforce all of the provisions in this amendment. In February of 1869, after several southern states refused to ratify the 14th Amendment or enact black male suffrage, Congress passed the 15th Amendment, which was specifically designed to protect the voting rights of black men. Now, an interesting side note and kind of an unfortunate side note here, the debates over the 14th and the 15th Amendments caused a major split in the coalition of white feminists aligned with advocates of voting rights for black men. The feminist and abolitionist movements had been closely tied, almost one in the same, since the early 19th century. Um, for example, Frederick Douglass was one of the signers of the Declaration of Sentiments at the 1848 Seneca Falls Women's Rights Convention, and women's suffrage advocates like Elizabeth Cady Stanton began their careers as abolitionists. So they had deep ties to one another, but the debates over these two amendments pitted votes for women against votes for black men. Because Lord help us if they both vote. I know. The 14th Amendment proposed to only protect the voting rights of male inhabitants. In fact, the amendment was the first time that male was inserted into the Constitution at all. Then, the 15th Amendment declared that states could not deny the right to vote based on race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Uh, the amendment did not mention sex. These were deliberate omissions, and it led to fierce debates between advocates for women's suffrage. Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony split with others in the women's rights movement and formed the National Women's Suffrage Association, whose sole focus was the immediate voting rights for women. Others, led by Lucy Stone and Julia Ward Howe, formed the American Women Suffrage Association, which continued to support suffrage for black men with the understanding that the vote for women would come next. The two women's suffrage organizations did not join forces again until 1890, when they combined to form the National American Women's Suffrage Association, known as NAWSA. But back to the 14th Amendment. Reconstruction officially ended in 1877 with something called the Compromise of 1877 or the Great Betrayal. 
Democrats had already taken back many southern state governments by the 1876 presidential election. In a kind of backroom bargain, the Republican presidential candidate Rutherford 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 stupid name B. Hayes <laughs> name my kid Rutherford don't do it <laughs> what would you call him Ruddy Ferdy Ferdy oh that would be really Ferd. he would get that would, beat that would up. be a really cute little boy Ferd Ferdy Ferdy oh <laughs> his mother hated him. <laughs> Rutherford B. Hayes won the presidency, well, presidency, now I can't talk at all, won the presidency through a vote by the Electoral Commission in exchange for Hayes's, 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 Hayes, <laughs> for Hayes's representatives agreeing to recognize Democratic control of the entire South and to avoid further intervention in local affairs while Democrats agreed not to dispute Hayes's right to the presidency and they promised to respect the civil and political rights of blacks. So the Democratic candidate actually won the, the popular election, right? Yeah. But, um, you know, but Hayes won the electoral vote, essentially, mm. right? So very familiar. familiar. <laughs> yeah. But, like, the tables are turned. Uh, and so this was what was known as redemption, where the South almost immediately barred all black men from voting, enacted Jim Crow laws, and ushered in a period of mass violence against blacks. Right. Just so, maybe I didn't write that very well, but basically the the Great Patrol is, is kind of the end of Reconstruction, right? So right. federal troops pull out of the South, and immediately the South cracks down, and mm -hmm. you have Jim Crow, right? Uh, so during the 1870s, the U.S. Supreme Court accepted interpretations of the 14th and 15th Amendments that gravely diminished the protections they provided to African Americans. Uh, the first case that made its way to the U.S. Supreme Court dealing with the interpretation of the 14th Amendment uh, are known as the Slaughterhouse Cases. So it was actually kind of a... a a bunch of cases rolled into one. Um, these cases had absolutely nothing to do with black citizenship or newly freed people. Instead, these were cases involving white businessmen in Louisiana. In question was the constitutionality of an 1869 Louisiana law that incorporated the Crescent City Livestock Landing and Slaughterhouse Company yeah. woo, and granted it the exclusive right to butcher livestock in the city of New Orleans. On its surface, the law was supposed to protect public health <laughs> by reducing the amount of waste created by the mass slaughter of animals in the butchering industry. Which is a lot of waste. A lot of waste yeah. and smell and yeah. crying animals. Fun. I love bacon. <laughs> um in actuality, state legislators had been bribed outright by the city livestock landing and slaughterhouse company to be awarded the sole right to operate in the city. The Butchers Benevolent Association, or the BBA, as everyone calls them, <laughs> a group of butchers who had been left out of the corporation, filed suit in federal court. The butchers claimed that by denying them the property right to practice their livelihood without state interference, Louisiana had violated their rights under the 13th Amendment. You know, the, the one that created that was created to make slavery illegal. Right. Uh, also, they claimed that by creating a monopoly that favored some citizens at the cost of others, Louisiana had violated their rights under the 14th Amendment as well. 
A consolidation of several of these suits came to be known as the Slaughterhouse Cases and reached the U.S. Supreme Court in 1873. A 5-4 majority ruled in favor of the state of Louisiana and against the butchers. Justice Samuel Miller wrote for the majority opinion and interpreted the five-year-old 14th Amendment narrowly. He held that the, quote, distinction between citizenship of the United States and citizenship of a state is clearly recognized and established, and that because the Privileges and Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment applied only to the rights associated with national citizenship and not those of state citizenship, it did not prohibit the state of Louisiana from creating the butchering monopoly. What this reading of the law meant was that the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the Amendment was made ineffectual. Even though the drafter of the clause, Representative John Bingham of Ohio, explained on the House floor during its drafting that the clause was intended to give Congress the power to enforce the Bill of Rights against the states. The lasting outcome was a limited understanding of the Privileges or Immunities Clause. So this interpretation drastically altered the trajectory of constitutional law. Citizens would now have to seek substantive rights protection under the 14th Amendment's Due Process Clause, a strategy that continues today. So when courts make decisions in discrimination cases, they must rest those decisions on the Due Process Clause. Something else that is really fascinating about studying the law in these court cases decisions is reading the briefs and statements and dissents by the court judges themselves. Um, So when a a ruling is made, there is the majority opinion, but then judges who do not agree can write a dissent explaining why they disagree with the majority ruling if they choose to do so. I mean, I guess they can also write briefs if they agree and Mm -hmm. and kind of basically they're just kind of explaining like their legal reasoning of, of why they chose or why they decided the way they did. Um, So, for example, in the Slaughterhouse cases, one of the dissenting judges, Justice Field, (laughs) just ripped apart the majority opinion. Uh, He advocated a broad reading of both the 13th and the 14th Amendments in uh, in these cases and saw what the majority was doing and strongly opposed their interpretation. Other dissenting judges were even questioning if the courts had the authority to narrow the scope of the 14th Amendment in such a way. So these dissents are, are great ways to see what other judges were thinking during these important rulings and basically what other people in the nation were thinking during these rulings. And historically, it's a clear way to see that there were clear legal paths to rule in these cases differently, right, Um, to interpret the law differently. And so this goes along with this idea of contingency that we bring up a lot in this podcast, that history happens through choices that people made. And they made those choices while operating within a context of cultural constraints. But they still made choices nonetheless. So to see these dissents and to see that there was a legal path to interpret the 14th more broadly, it just wasn't taken. Um, It's a great example of contingency, just to see that there were other ways that this could go. Yeah. Another case that weakened the spirit of the 14th Amendment happened only three years after the slaughterhouse cases. In U.S. v. Cruikshank of 1876, the court determined that state action is required for the United States government to intervene when, for example, a mob lynches a black man. This case stemmed from the infamous Colfax Massacre in Louisiana. This is one of the worst cases of racial violence in American history. Notice I say only one because there are a bunch. 
1872 governor election in Louisiana was close. President Ulysses S. Grant sent federal troops to support the Republican candidate. In response, white Southerners, many former Confederate soldiers, formed a heavily armed insurgent army they called the White League. It was very much like the Ku Klux Klan in that it was a paramilitary group that intimidated and attacked newly freed black people and white Republicans across Louisiana. The Grant Parish regional government was pretty evenly split between black and white citizens, but Republicans and freedmen feared that the Democrats were going to seize control. An all-black militia took control of the local courthouse in April of 1873, and a mob of more than 150 white men, most former Confederate soldiers and members of the KKK and the White League, arrived and surrounded the courthouse. They fired a cannon on the courthouse, and the men inside fired back, and gunfire was exchanged for a time. But eventually, the black men inside had to surrender because they were outgunned. When they surrendered, however, the white mob murdered anywhere from between 60 to 150 African-Americans inside. It was horrible. 97 members of the white mob were indicted. In the end, only nine men were charged for violating the Enforcements Acts of 1870 and 1871, sometimes known as the Ku Klux Klan Acts, intended to guarantee the rights of freedmen under the 14th and 15th Amendments. The defendants appealed, and when the case eventually came before the Supreme Court in 1876, the justices overturned the lower court's convictions, ruling that the Enforcement Acts applied only to actions by the state, not by individuals. So what this Supreme Court ruling did was essentially prohibited the federal government's ability to prosecute hate crimes committed against African Americans. The U.S. government could not intervene to protect someone's 14th Amendment rights unless their rights were being violated by the state not by an individual or a group of individuals. Mm -hmm. These days, the federal government has worked around that and can intervene through the Commerce Clause, which is a whole like other thing. But essentially, because of this decision in U.S. v. Crookshank, that's why the Commerce Clause is used for such actions today. Right. So since we're talking about this chronologically, we'll talk a little bit about Yikwu v. Hopkins, which we mentioned earlier. Um, in this case, the city of San Francisco had passed a kind of quote-unquote safety ordinance, which made it illegal to operate a laundry in anything other than a brick or stone building. Now, on its surface, that seems legit, right? Seems like a safety thing. But the court found that the law was made and administered with a, quote, evil eye and an unjust hand, so as practically to make unjust and illegal discrimination between persons in similar circumstances. Material to their rights, the denial of equal justice is within the prohibition of the Constitution, end quote. That's 19th century legal jargon for, like, quote, unquote, you guys pass this law to specifically discriminate against Chinese laundries because they can't or don't operate out of brick and stone buildings, right? Yeah. 
Um, so even though this law seemed benign on the surface, uh, under scrutiny, it was passed with malintent, right? They, they found it was passed with malintent or discriminatory intent, and therefore it violated the 14th Amendment. That reminds me of the argument over voter ID laws. Absolutely. So, you know, that's one of the arguments, right? That on its surface, it's this benign law, right? Everybody has a license, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, opponents point out that it is designed to discriminate against minority voters. And they don't drive, so don't, they don't need licenses, right? Well, or whatever. Yeah. You know, there's there's many, many, many reasons yeah. why people would not have an ID. So in Yikwu v. Hopkins, the Supreme Court unanimously decided that the administration of the San Francisco law was discriminatory and that there was no need, therefore, to even consider whether the ordinance itself was lawful. Even though the Chinese laundry owners were not were usually not American citizens, the court ruled that they were still entitled to equal protection under the 14th Amendment. Justice Matthews denounced the law as a blatant attempt to exclude Chinese from the laundry trade in San Francisco, and the court struck down the law, ordering dismissal of all charges against other laundry owners who had been jailed. What's interesting is that Yikwu was never applied to Jim Crow laws, which rested on Plessy v. Ferguson, uh, which now we will discuss. So Plessy v. Ferguson was an 1896 U.S. Supreme Court decision that upheld the constitutionality of racial segregation under the separate but equal doctrine. The case stemmed from an 1892 incident in which an African-American train passenger, Homer Plessy, refused to sit in a car for blacks. Rejecting Plessy's argument that his constitutional rights were violated, the Supreme Court ruled that the state law that implies merely a legal distinction between whites and blacks did not conflict with the 13th or 14th Amendments. So this, again, was a very narrow reading of the 13th Amendment and said that it only abolished slavery, that a legal distinction based on race was not the same thing as slavery. In this way, they said that the separate but equal doctrine was okay because it did not actually create a state of slavery, only of difference, which, of course, was a precursor to entering the period of Jim Crow, Separate public accommodations based on race were encouraged after the Plessy decision. It prevented federal action from intervening. They narrowly interpreted the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, saying the federal government can't act under the Equal Protection Clause in state matters. Um, essentially, it let states do what they wanted, segregated schools, you know, etc. I think that's, I mean, this is super interesting because this is a perfect parallel to what we'll talk about in the Nuremberg Laws uh, episode in, in a couple of weeks, um, that race-based distinction between citizens of the United States versus race-based distinctions on Germans and Jews because the German, or the, yeah, the, German, the Nazi government had to create those new laws. They didn't have that existing slavery mm -hmm. uh, foundation to build on, but they essentially do the same thing. Well, they based a lot of it on, on American, on American yeah. yeah, and you go into that? No, I don't, but I should They did. Yeah. I mean, they specifically looked yeah. at American Jim Crow laws yeah. in order to um, prop up their yeah. their uh, regime, essentially. Absolutely. And, you know, and God, I'm trying to remember, Sarah and I talk about Plessy v. Ferguson in another episode. Um, it, was, it was essentially a test case. Um, Plessy, mm -hmm. it's really interesting because Plessy actually could pass as white, Mm. Right. And so th this was like a forcing, a trying to like uh, um, 
you know, force this this law, like, to make a d- decision on it one way or the other. Mm-hmm. So, like, he was sitting in the in the whites section yeah. and is like, hey, dudes, I'm black, right? Yeah. You know, and kind of forced himself to be arrested. So it was hmm. um, a lot of these big cases. That's what I think it's in our Roe v. Wade one that we're talking about it. Um, because oh. a lot of these, like, really big cases are actually cases that are, quote, unquote, forced as far as, like, okay, we need to test this law. So we're going to, mm. you know do this that or the other so anyway so you can listen like a political defense kind of case well yeah like we just need to we need to get a ruling on this one way or the other we need to test if this is legal or not yeah kind of thing so yeah so listen to a roe v wade case and you can learn more about pussy yes uh so i mean back to this we can see how the weakening of the 14th amendment was one thing that led to the proliferation of Jim Crow, mm-hmm. um, school segregation, civil rights violations, institutionalized racism, all the <laughs> fun stuff. Right. So all the reasons, essentially, that the framers of the uh, Reconstruction Amendments wanted to protect against. Exactly. Right? So the years 1897 to roughly 1930 are known as the Lochner era in legal history because the courts used substantive due process to protect businesses from state regulation. So it's kind of funny because substantive due process was originally developed to protect businesses um, and it is now primarily used today to protect individual rights. But during the Lochner era, uh, but the Lochner era gets its name from the 1905 decision, Lochner v. New York, which basically ruled that it was against the 14th Amendment for states to set maximum hours laws to protect workers. The courts held that a New York law requiring that bakery employee hours had to be under 10 hours a day and 60 hours a week violated the due process clause, which in their view contained a right of freedom of contract. They said there was, quote, unreasonable, unnecessary, and arbitrary interference with the right of and liberty of the individual to contract. So this was a very very conservative ruling and immediately had its detractors right in fact justin oliver wendell holmes dissent in this case is pretty legendary he accused the court of judicial activism and claimed the case was quote decided upon an economic theory which a large part of the country does not entertain the 14th amendment does not enact mr herbert spencer's social statics and for you listeners uh spencer is the guy behind like social darwinism right um holmes said quote a constitution is not intended to embody a particular economic theory end quote so he was pretty pissed the lochner era then is known as such because during the period the supreme court invalidated several federal and state statutes that sought to limit working conditions um another one for any of you like women's historians would be uh i think it's mueller v uh oregon um and that was that was a case where uh they were trying to limit the hours um for women, right? Working for women. It was kind of a big win for people like Florence Kelly. And then that one was, was overturned as well. Uh, anyway, so the period ended uh, with West Coast Hotel Company v. Parrish in 1937, in which the Supreme Court upheld the constitutionality of minimum wage legislation enacted by the state of Washington. So if you'll notice 1937, that is during the New Deal mm. when uh, kind of workers' rights kind of start taking more precedence, mm-hmm. right? End of kind of this laissez-faire yeah. um, government. And certainly the court packing 
that FDR did. That's a whole nother. Well, yeah. I mean, that was like, hey, look, if you guys, because there's nothing in the Constitution that says there has to be seven or nine judges or whatever, right? right? So, So FDR essentially said, look, if you jabronis don't start passing my legislation, right. I'm going to just, like, make the court, like, 26 people that I mm-hmm. all, you know, that I that I uh, appointed them all, right? And everything's going to happen. Yeah. And they're like, okay, well, maybe we should loosen up a little bit. Yeah. It's a little more complicated than it that. Is. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There are ties. <clears throat> so, anyway, how did we get to where we are now? Where the 14th Amendment is used to protect people's individual civil rights. That's tricky because decisions on so many things go so many different ways. One of the major decisions was Brown v. Board of Education in 1954. And this ruling struck down Plessy v. Ferguson and made the separate but equal doctrine illegal. Most people are pretty familiar with the Brown decision, but what's interesting is some of the cases leading up to Brown uh, that made Brown possible. Uh, so one of those is Mendez v. Westminster from 1947. Uh, it was filed in federal court and became the first lawsuit where the plaintiff argued that the separate but equal doctrine or the separate but equal statute violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment for K-12 through public schools. Um, now, the NAACP had already begun litigating school segregation, uh, but they had been uh, litigating school segregation involving higher education, so college cases, before attempting cases that tested the 14th Amendment argument as pertaining to like elementary schools, K-12 through schools. Um, so, for example, the NAACP financed and argued for the plaintiff in Missouri XREL, that kind of means on behalf of, uh, Gaines v. Canada in 1938. Um, and where that one, the United States Supreme Court struck down a portion of Missouri law. <laughs> Get this, this. This is kind of messed up. Uh, so the Missouri law, it, 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 it didn't allow black students to be admitted to its law school. But what they did instead is they just provided funds for black students to attend law schools in other states. I know, like, what? how convoluted can you get, right? <laughs> uh, so, so they won, right? NAACP won on that one. Um, and although a win, right, in kind of a long list of civil rights cases, instead of testing the separate but equal doctrine, the uh, Gaines v. Canada ruling mandated that states must only provide equal education in separate schools. Mm. So just repeating the same old rejoinder. Right, right. Rulings in favor of the NAACP and civil rights came in Sipwell v. Regents of University of Oklahoma in 1948 and Sweat v. Painter in 1950. All these cases involved higher education, whereas Mendez tested public school segregation in grades K-12, through like Brown would later. So Mendez v. Westminster, Westminster? Mendez v. Westminster also marked the first time in federal court that plaintiffs succeeded in forbidding segregation using the argument that separate was not equal. So here are the specifics of that case. On March 2, 1945, Gonzalo Mendez and four other Mexican-American fathers filed suit on behalf of their children and 5,000 other Mexican heritage children in four surrounding school districts. Um, This was in California. They alleged that Mexican heritage children, quote, have been or are now excluded from attending, using, enjoying, and receiving the benefits of the education, health, and recreation facilities of certain schools within their respective districts, but that 
said children are now and have been segregated and required to attend and use certain schools in said districts and systems reserved for and attended solely and exclusively by children and persons of Mexican and Latin descents, while such other schools are maintained, attended, and used exclusively by and for persons and children purportedly known as white or Anglo-Saxon children. Oh, legal jargon. (laughs) David C. Marcus and A.L. Weirin served as attorney and co-counsel for the Mendez plaintiffs, who argued that the school districts made a concerted effort to segregate Mexican heritage children in violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. In February 1946, Judge Paul J. McCormick ruled, quote, We conclude by holding that the allegations of the complaint have been established sufficiently to justify injunctive relief against all defendants, restraining further discriminatory practices against the pupils of Mexican descent in the public schools of defendant school, defendant school districts, end quote. In his opinion, Judge McCormick addressed the, quote, equal protection of the laws pertaining to the public school system in California is not provided by furnishing in separate schools the same technical facilities, textbooks, and courses. A paramount requisite in the American system of public education is social equality. It must be open to all children by unified school association, regardless of lineage, end quote. The defendant school districts appealed the ruling to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in San Francisco. The NAACP, the American Jewish Congress, the Attorney General of the State of California, the American Civil Liberties Union, and the National Lawyers Guild submitted amicus curiae briefs in support of Mendez. And amicus curiae briefs are uh, reports or petitions written by people or groups who are not directly involved in the case, but have a vested interest in it one way or the other. Uh, Thurgood Marshall, Robert L. Carter, and Lauren Miller wrote the brief wrote the brief submitted by the NAACP, which argued that since Judge McCormick um, argued against Plessy in his original opinion that social equality was a paramount requisite in the American education system, not separate schools, the Ninth Circuit Court should rule against Plessy. They argued that since the Supreme Court had never ruled directly on the constitutionality of public school segregation, the Ninth Court, quote, is not bound by decisions of the Supreme Court to validate a segregated school system, end quote. People who later worked on the Brown v. Board of Education case said that the Mendez amicus brief written by the NAACP was a useful dry run and testing the temperature of the courts without putting the NAACP itself in the field. The Ninth Court of Appeals ruling on April 14, 1947, upheld the district court's verdict in a unanimous 7-0 decision, calling for an end to segregation in the defendant school districts. Unfortunately, It was a small victory because the Ninth Court did not take up the separate but equal doctrine, but instead ruled that the segregation of school children of Mexican ancestry violated the pupils' rights under the 14th Amendment by, quote, depriving them of liberty and property without due process of law and by denying the equal protection of the laws. So it's interesting to look at this case and see how these types of legal precedents work, right? Um, Mendez didn't make it to the Supreme Court, 
But people like Thurgood Marshall, who ended up winning Brown v. Board just a few years later, were watching and using cases like Mendez to see how the courts would rule, to see what arguments to use, right? Um, so like previously mentioned, it, it, it was kind of like a test case. And just as a side note, the U.S. Postal Service did make a stamp for Mendez v. Westminster in hmm. 2007. Cool. It's a pretty stamp, too. You should look it up. Constance Baker Motley, a United States District Court judge and early legal staff member of the NAACP who helped prepare briefs for Brown v. Board, uh, she later wrote, quote, we all sensed from those higher education decisions and from the ninth court decision in Mendez repudiating the segregation of Mexican children in California that integrated education was was an idea whose time had come. So on to the big one. Brown v. Board of Education. It arrived on the Supreme Court's docket in 1951, but the court postponed their decision until the next term because 1952 was an election year, and the court was deeply divided over the politically volatile issue. Unexpectedly, Chief Justice Vinson died of a heart attack, and the newly elected Dwight D. Eisenhower named Earl Warren as the new Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. But re-arguments for Brown were again postponed until 1954 because Chief Justice Warren insisted that no vote be taken until the court could come to a unanimous decision against segregated schooling. That's pretty interesting. He, he didn't want to let it proceed until he was sure he could get a unanimous decision one way or the other. Right. The landmark decision of Brown v. Board of Education held that separate segregated public schools violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. So we're not going back to that due process business. No, this is basically, yeah. Using sort of the 14th Amendment, maybe the way it was supposed to be. Right, 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 right. In his opinion, Chief Justice Warren referenced Sweat and other higher education segregation cases in deciding that segregation based solely on race deprived children of minority groups in equal education. Mm -hmm. The court also relied on social science testimony, which they also did in Mendez, to decide that segregation was psychologically detrimental to minority children. Yeah, and that was kind of a new thing, right? Using kind of psychology. Not always good things that come out of psychology. (laughs) True. But so this decision was revolutionary because it overturned Plessy v. Ferguson. It wasn't like the slaughterhouse cases, which are actually still on the books today. Brown instead said, no, these prior cases like Plessy were wrong. Separate is not equal. And they overturned it. And so the Warren Court is known um, as kind of being the shift to protecting individual liberties and using equal protection and substantive due process for civil rights. And it's so interesting that Warren really wanted these unanimous votes on these types of decisions. He didn't like these 5-4 splits. He wanted a strong ruling doctrine. So that's why Brown took so long to come to trial. It's so fascinating. Um, And as a side note, this is also around the time when the conservative movement started taking root in Southern California. And there was a lot of conservative mobilization against the Warren Court because of these big civil rights cases, um, you know, that came out of the court that overturned a lot of, uh, you know, states' rights, home rule type dog whistle type of laws. Hmm. And from there, things started rolling. 
1967, the court ruled in Loving v. Virginia that equal protection and due process were used to strike down marriage laws that said black and white people could not marry one another. In 1973, the court used the 14th Amendment in a more creative way, legalizing abortion in the United States in Roe v. Wade. In Roe, the court said Americans had a, quote, right to privacy, pulling text from the Constitution's 1st, 4th, 9th, and 14th Amendments. Jane Roe's right to privacy was violated by the Texas statute that banned abortions except to save the life of the mother. Interestingly, Bush v. Gore in 2000 was also decided using the 14th Amendment. Uh, in 2000, amid the Florida recount, if any of you guys are old enough to remember that, and hanging chads, it was <laughs> so fun. Um, so this Florida recount, which would decide the presidency, George W. Bush's lawyers successfully argued that the recount violated the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause because different standards of counting were used in different municipalities. The court's decision effectively killed the recount and Bush became the country's 43rd president of the United States. In 2015, the Supreme Court decided Obergefell v. Hodges. The 14th Amendment was applied to make same-sex marriage legal. Justice Anthony Kennedy wrote that, quote, no union is more profound than marriage and that the due process clause extends to, quote, certain personal choices central to individual dignity and autonomy, including intimate choices that define personal identity and beliefs, end quote. He also used the equal protection portion of the amendment saying that it prohibits this unjustified infringement of the fundamental right to marry. In many ways, the 14th Amendment is one of the most relevant amendments to our everyday lives today. Many of the personal freedoms that we take for granted are because of the 14th Amendment. More legal cases are raised by it, more arguments are created by it, and more controversy is connected with it than any other part of the U.S. Constitution. The 14th, I don't know. Well, maybe the I know, maybe the second, maybe the first. So I, that might be a little hyperbolic on my part, but it's a big deal. So the 14th Amendment established citizenship rights for the first time and equal protection to former slaves, and it laid the foundation for how we understand these ideals today. So hopefully we've expressed how differently the Constitution can be interpreted based on the culture and political climate of the day. And also that contingency is always working. There was never just one path that would lead us to where we are now. Decisions and choices were made, some good, some bad, some yet to be determined that create our history and our present world. Constitutional constructions can be interpreted broadly or narrowly depending on the cultural consensus of the day and the constitution of the court and who is in power and how that power shapes how laws are interpreted. Power, 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 power. Well, that's it for today. Let us know if you like this story or if you liked this episode and you want to know more. Um, we had to skim or skip so much. So if there's a particular court case or whatever that you'd be interested in hearing more about, let us know through email or tweet at us or join our super awesome Facebook group, Dig History Pot Squad. So thanks for listening. Thanks, people. Bye. 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 This podcast was produced by the historians of DIG, Elizabeth garner Masaryk, Sarah Hanley-Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Avril Earls. Thanks for listening. The 14th Amendment provided an expand... Expanded. Expanded.
A consolidation of several of these dudes came to be known as the Slaughterhouse Cases, and it probably dudes. So the years 1897 to roughly 1930, known as the Wachner era in legal history, because the court used substantive due process to protect businesses from state regulation. Well, that was not a complete sentence. <clears throat> <laughs> Uh, Ober, oh god, I can never say that. Obergefell. Obergefell. Obergefell, I think. Obergefell. Hodges. No, I can't even say Hodges. Obergefell. Obergefell. It's a Obergefell? What are you saying? Obergefell. Like I said, it was pronounced more. Oh. Obergefell. I mean, we're saying the same thing. Are we saying how they pronounce it, and I'm not sure. Yeah, we'll just go. Obergefell v. Hodges. No, that sounds right. I think, I think, you know, he. Here in America, work is in trouble. We've offshored our manufacturing, sent away good jobs, and lost so much ability to make things. American Giant is a company that's pushing back against this tide. They make high-quality clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more, right here in the USA. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, promo code STAPLE20.